Hello and welcome to the Life After Blindness podcast. This week in the news, I'll be joined by Maria Johnson from GirlGoneBlind.com to talk about Apple's website being inaccessible, an initiative by the Charles Schultz Museum for the Blind and Visually Impaired, and because of an email that I received, we revisit a story from a few weeks back concerning the NFB and Kellogg's Rice Krispies. And later in the podcast, I'll be joined by Marty Schultz from BlindfoldGames.com to discuss his new initiative with education. This is episode number 29, and your life after blindness journey continues right now. Hello, everyone. My name is Tim Schwartz, and I want to thank you so much for joining me on Life After Blindness. This is the podcast where we are dedicated to the exploration of an enabled life with blindness. I also want to thank everyone for tuning in to the last episode that was dedicated to this year's Apple event, their announcement of all their newest hardware from the Apple Watch to three new iPhones, as well as iOS 12 being released shortly thereafter. We had a really great discussion in the last episode. I sat down with two AMI audio contributors from Canada, Mike Fear and Jay Taylor, and we had a really nice talk about all the new Apple announcements. So if you haven't taken a listen to that yet, you can check that out on lifeafterblindness.com slash 28, or of course, wherever you get your podcast, just look for that last episode about the Apple event. But again, I want to thank all of you who have tuned into that so far and made that episode a big success. Now, now, this week's episode, of course, you can find the show notes by going to lifeafterblindness.com slash 29. That's lifeafterblindness.com slash 29. And like I said at the top, I will be speaking with Maria Johnson here in just a moment about a few things going on in the news. Also, later on, I'll be joined by Marty Schultz from Blindfold Games. He's got a really great new initiative when it comes to education and getting some of his app and app concepts or apps and app concepts into schools for the blind and visually impaired. So I'll be talking with him about that a little bit later on. Since there is so much to get to, I do not have a because of my blindness story that I'll be sharing with you this week. I do have a couple ready to go, but uh, I will be saving those for the coming weeks. If you have a because of my blindness story that you'd like to share, please email those to me. You can send your emails to tim at lifeafterblindness.com. Again, that's tim at lifeafterblindness.com. If you have a story you'd like to tell about your blindness, whether it's funny, silly, in instructive, educational, inspiring, or just something that you you know want people to understand about blindness, whatever it is that you want to tell, you want to tell your story, send it to me in text and an email, or preferably if you could record audio and attach that to an email for me, that would be even better. So I can play that for you right here on the podcast. So please send in your because of my blindness stories. Also, because we did dedicate a whole episode last week to the Apple event and talked so much technology, I won't be doing a Tim's tech tip or T3 this week. I do have several of those in the pipeline that I've been putting together. So make sure to stay tuned in coming weeks for different types of tips about Apple and uh, Apple Watch, the new iOS 12, Siri shortcuts, all those kind of things I'll be talking about here soon. Also, some of the new Amazon products, as well as uh, some tips and tricks for using Lady A with the Amazon Echo. So many other things that I'm, I'm looking into doing tips on. So stay tuned for those coming up in future weeks as well. Also, in future weeks, I'll be speaking with Stephen Scott again from the UK. He had earlier this year, been able to ride in a Tesla in an automated uh, vehicle. So we'll be talking about that. 
Also, in the coming weeks, I will be interviewing the creator of the very popular app, Be My Eyes. So stay tuned for that as well. All of this and so much more coming up in future episodes of Life After Blindness. So what do you say? Why don't we go ahead and get right into it with this week's news? And in the news this week, we have a few interesting stories to talk through, a couple new things going on, and then we're going to do an update on a story based on an email that I received. And to talk through the news this week, joining me once again so graciously, the wonderful, the lovely, the talented, from girlgoneblind.com, Maria Johnson. Maria, welcome back to Life After Blindness. Well, that was quite an intro. Thank you, Tim. It's good to be here. You're welcome. Well, you got to butter up the the guests, make sure they'll keep coming back. You know, keep them keep them happy. <laughs> hey, I'm not complaining, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, Maria, this first story we're going to talk about. Uh, I talked a little bit about this kind of a topic a few weeks ago with Sean Priest when he was on to talk a little tech with me. We talked about how Dunkin' Donuts was being sued because their website wasn't accessible, and we got into a bit of a general conversation about is is lawsuits or are lawsuits you know, an appropriate way to handle this. We are covered by the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, when it comes to website accessibility. And a lot of major companies, it seems lately, are getting sued because they're not quite accessible one way or another with their websites. And shockingly enough, of all companies, of all websites, it's been found out that certain portions of Apple's website, yep, I said Apple, uh, their website has a few different or a couple different areas that are not accessible with screen readers. Now, specifically, according to the article we've been looking at, Maria, seems like it's just with JAWS. If you have NVEDA or, of course, VoiceOver, uh, it seems like it works fine with those. But uh, I don't know if there's just not a JAWS script that's available to make it accessible with JAWS. I don't know if people at Freedom Scientific are, are more at fault than, than Apple. But I think that's what this lawsuit is going to figure out. But a, uh, a lady, Ms. Menendez, has... Uh, taken Apple to court in a class action lawsuits just recently been filed. So it's very early stages. And she's saying that parts of the website, like making appointments for an Apple store or getting information from the Apple store, parts of it uh, with iCloud, things like that are not accessible at all with the screen reader. Mm. Well, I don't use a screen reader on my computer. I have a, um, a Mac, so I use the built-in accessibility features. And to be honest, I haven't really perused the Apple website in quite some time. But, you know, it is kind of shocking that a company who prides themselves on making their product as accessible as possible, and that have their website, the simple little things on their website not accessible, you know, it's it's really shocking, like I said. Now, I, I can relate a little bit to this, is, and you might so too, Tim, is when we're using VoiceOver on our iPhone and we come to a website and there's, you know, the buttons aren't labeled and, you know, we're trying yeah, to find button, things. Button, right? button, button, <laughs> button, button, button. And if it even says anything, right? And you're like, oh, now I get it. That is extremely frustrating. And you just kind of either you ditch the website or you have someone else look at it for you. But that should just not happen with Apple.com. So um, you, on the other hand, you know, are we so happy? Um, are we forced to go this far to get a company to pay attention to the accessibility features of their website? You know, again, what are the ins and outs? What's behind the scenes? There's two sides to every story, as they say. And, you know, I'm sure 
as we've been discussing, Tim, Apple's going to go, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. Right. And, um, and, and try and make this right. I mean, I would hope so. Yeah, I mean, this might be pie in the sky for me as an Apple fanboy to say what I'm about to say, but I'm hopeful that Tim Cook and company and the accessibility team over there are going to see this lawsuit you know, when they saw this lawsuit filed and go, wait a minute, what? Those parts of our site aren't accessible? Why not? You know, I can just see Tim Cook going, excuse me? Mm -hmm. What do you mean it's not accessible? You guys take care of this right away. This is a company, as you said, Maria, takes pride in the fact that they're accessible to not just people in the blind and visually impaired community, but for people that are deaf or have mobility issues or, or other yeah. types of disabilities. They really have led the way the last, what, nine or 10 years in this area, so much so that they've, they've led to other companies, you know, like Google phones, Android phones, and other companies implementing accessibility into their products out of the box. But Apple really was was the first to do that. Mm -hmm. And so the pride that they take in that accessibility, and they have a, a wonderful accessibility team, I will be shocked, quite honestly. Again, I'm an Apple fanboy. I'll admit that. I'll, I'll, I'll say that right out loud. But mm -hmm. I would be shocked if this goes much further in, in, the, in the courts because I want to believe, I have to believe that a company like Apple is going to say, no, we're not going to have this. First of all, they don't want that kind of PR. That's just bad press. Mm -hmm. and it's already looking bad, but they're going to say, nope, we've got to take care of this right away. Get get rid of this uh, you know, immediately. This is something that we should have taken care of already. Let's make this accessible and make this go away. If this was any other company, you know, like the Dunkin' Donuts thing, they actually had to be found guilty in order to make their website accessible. Mm -hmm. So it went all through the courts to, to actually get a decision they didn't settle out of court and say, nope, we'll take care of it. No problem. It had to go the distance. So it will happen and can happen, but I'm hoping Apple won't do that. Now, that being said, you made a great point. We are a Sue happy nation, unfortunately. And I'm here to tell you, I'm the last person in the world that wants to just start suing companies left and right to make things happen. That being said, Sometimes if you've contacted the company and you've done your due diligence, you've contacted the company, you've had friends or family or coworkers or other people that have contacted them, they're well aware of it. They've been emailed. They've been, you know, taking the task on it. And if it's been a certain reasonable period of time and nothing has happened, you know what? In this country, especially your ultimate recourse is a lawsuit sometimes, and that may just be what you have to do. So I'm I'm a big believer in diplomacy and and figuring out another way of getting to the end result. But if you if you have to, uh, you know, I, I, if that's all that you have left mm -hmm. is to take them to court, then fine, so be it. I'm I'm not going to say that somebody doesn't have the legal right to do that because they do. Um, but I'm just hoping in a case like this that Apple will take care of it and maybe be a model to a lot of other companies to say, no, this is something that can be easily done in today's you know, website world. This is not hard to do. Make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Keep it out of the courts. Um, and like, you know, they've got the team. I mean, you've said that they've got the team to do this of all of all places. Uh, so I'm sure they'll make it happen, too. Yeah, I'm really hoping, like we said, that Apple will go ahead and just settle this, take care of it, because it isn't hard to take care of. They've got a good accessibility accessibility team, like we said. So I'm really hopeful that they'll take care of this. Whether they do or they don't, whether this has to continue through the class action process or not, if there's any news or any kind of update to this, uh, everybody out there, please just keep, you know, keep your ears out for the podcast, and uh, we'll talk about it here. Or, of course, follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I will link any news stories that might come out uh, concerning this. 
and any updates that might happen. And if anybody out there has your own opinion, are there too many lawsuits going on here when it comes to accessibility or is this the right thing to do? Email me, tim at lifeafterblindness.com. Now, Maria, this next story talking about accessibility and making things accessible, which it's one of these situations where I don't know that anybody was even necessarily asking for this, but it happened. And I'm talking about the Charles M. Schultz Museum, the same Charles Schultz that has brought us peanuts for, for all these years. Mr. Schultz has passed away you know, long ago, but uh, we still definitely enjoyed the peanuts characters, Charlie Brown and Snoopy and all that. So at the Charles M. Schultz Museum, which is located in Santa Rosa, California, they have started offering cartoons or illustrations of the various Peanuts characters and in certain situations and all that in the cartoons in a tactile format for the blind. So as you move about the museum, they have tactile renderings or tactile images of the Peanuts cartoon strips and characters so that you can feel outlines of what that particular cartoon strip or comic strip feels like. I think this is fantastic. Anytime, any museum, I don't care if it's a small museum or a large, big national museum, anytime anything like this happens, I'm so excited about it, Maria. I absolutely love this too. I love museums. I've always loved going to museums. And after my vision loss, I've been to one, two, maybe three museums. And I haven't done the um, tour where the the docent, if you will, does descriptions or anything like that. I've just gone with friends and kind of had to just kind of hold my own in the museum. But I tell you, all I want to do is touch everything. I want to touch the sculptures and the paintings, <laughs> right. right? And that's like an absolute no, no, and no. And, but, you know, someone may be describing it to me, a friend or family member, and I'll just be like, oh, but I just, I want to get closer and really, really kind of feel it out and, and look at it closer. If I get real close, I might be able to see like a color or something like that. But um, the, the, the truth is, that is just not allowed. Now, it is allowed at times when there are museums who do have special exhibitions or special showings, and they make it accessible for folks who are blind, visually impaired. It's made for that. Come in and touch the art, feel it, you know, um, right. soak it in, you know, all of the above. And it's it's just for that. But that was the cool thing about the Charles Schultz Museum is that no one asked him to do this. They decided that it would be cool to add this to their collection and raise the black lines of the black and white cartoon drawings so that they are tactile to add textures and um, different layers, if you will, um, to them to make them more tactile and add Braille for description. And they are having a, I forget the name exactly, but it's an accessible day at this museum. And I think this is the second year they're doing it. It's at the end of September and they are going to be showcasing some of these um, comic strips that they have converted over into a tactile form. So they're, they just, the gal who's heading it up again, don't remember the name, but she was so proud of this project and everyone she asked to help do this project, you know, with the museum was just more than happy to help out. And she just said she couldn't just, she couldn't be more thrilled about the outcome of making 
Charles Schultz, a Peanuts comic strip, uh, more accessible, more tactile for those who might need it. And it happens to be the, the comic strip they chose to do is one of the really early ones back in the 1950s, I believe. And yep. um, so they took one from way back, I think because it was simpler. It was much simpler drawings back then, unlike, you know, the ones in the 90s. And so it was easier to probably convert over to a tactile um, feel and format. So I think it's cool. I think museums should have a section that's accessible for those blind, um, visually impaired to be able to touch and feel some of the pieces of art um, or even just replications of certain statues or certain, you know, the Mona Lisa and whatnot and, you know, make them, you know, more tactile. And maybe it's, you know, next to the real one or maybe it's, maybe that's too dangerous. Maybe it's in another room, but, you know, then you're like, oh, this is what they talk about when it's the Mona Lisa and she's not smiling and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, or is she? <laughs> or is she, right? Well, why don't you feel it, you know? So, um, yeah, there's been so many articles in the last couple of years that I've read because I just am super interested in this stuff where museums are trying to come up with clever ways and clever Clever um, exhibitions, if you will, like I said, to include and make more inclusive their artwork or whatever they're um, whatever they're displaying, be it photographs or sculptures, um, make it more accessible for those who are blind, visually impaired. So kudos, kudos to uh, the Charles Schultz Museum. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think this is a fantastic thing. And like you, I mean, I share so many stories on Life After Blindness on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm always sharing any blindness-related news stories that I feel are something that we need to talk about or share or, or, or see. And I'm always finding so many museums, whether they're small local museums or big national museums, this is a trend lately, these last couple of years, where things are becoming more accessible, whether it's just implementing Braille, whether it's adding tactile renderings or formats of things, whether it's even miniature versions of sculptures or statues, like you had said, mm -hmm. uh, these things are becoming more and more popular. Actually, near where I live, the Art Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio, does a specific for the blind art tour where it's a hands-on tour. And actually, the sculptures and statues within this particular tour, they allow you to touch. Now, you have to put on gloves, you know, wear gloves, and uh, they have somebody there, right, you know, standing right there with you as you're touching the art. And uh, you can, you know, some of them you can only touch certain parts. Some of them yeah. they let you touch the whole thing. But they let you touch some of the art uh, as long as you've got the gloves on and the person there and then they walk you through and explain what there is and I have heard of other museums like you had said and, and I just mentioned where they'll have a miniature version that they 3D printed or, yeah. or sculpted that's a miniature version of a, of a statue or, or a tactile piece of artwork or something like a painting and I just love this I think this is the way to go I think having tactile formatting of things and braille offerings is fantastic. And if you're going to do it, a museum is the best place to do it. I know a couple of weeks ago, I talked about uh, virtual reality being an option here as well. Mm -hmm. So between 3D printing and virtual reality and, and other formats, 
I, I think this is great. I think that anything like this is fantastic. Anything that educate, not only helping educate people that are blind to understand what these things are and what they might look like or feel like, but it also, I think in a way has a byproduct of educating others who maybe are sighted yeah. and aren't aware of what it might take for a blind person to to know what these things are, educate them about these things. And so a sighted person might go, oh, well, isn't that a neat way to share this with the blind and visually impaired? Okay. And they then get an understanding of it as yeah. well. So having it out there in the forefront, I, I think there's never anything wrong with that. No, no. I think, like you said, you just said it hits all facets, not only for the blind, visually impaired, but also for the sighted community um, to understand what it's like to experience a museum in a totally different way. Um, maybe it's just a small portion of it, but hey, it's something um, for them to close their eyes and go, oh, feel, you know, feel Charlie Brown <laughs> with your eyes closed. <laughs> Absolutely. You can pet Snoopy. You've always wanted to pet yeah. Snoopy. Now you can pet Snoopy. Um, I know my wife would love that. She loves Snoopy. Yeah. So talking about bringing accessibility and Braille and, and other forms like that to the mainstream and bringing it into situations where maybe it was taken for granted that the accessibility was or was not there. A few weeks ago, Maria, you and I talked about a story coming from the NFB, the National Federation of the Blind, and Kellogg's company, the serial company, where they had a joint venture to announce not only these Braille stickers, they're little heart-shaped Braille stickers that you can, in Kellogg's mind, the design idea is that you can put the sticker over the heart that's on the pack of uh, Rice Krispie Treats, a single pack. But of course, you can stick them on anything. It's just a, a heart-shaped sticker. But they have Braille on them, and they say things like, you've got this, or good job, or I love you, or I'm proud of you, things like that. And along with that, they also announced a box. Of course, Kellogg's made sure the box uh, inside the space is just big enough for a single serving rice krispie treat. So of course, from their point of view, that's what they wanted to. But the special thing about the box is this snack box, you can actually record up to a 10 second message and it re-records about a thousand times and you can record an audio message for your child to put in their lunch. So not only could you put a Braille sticker on their food, preferably in Kellogg's mind, a rice krispie treat, but if you want to put a treat in the box and then record a short 10 second message to your blind child, blind or visually impaired child, you can do that. Now, when we talked about that, Maria, I think we both agreed that it was a fantastic idea. It's a great way for a sighted parent to be able to help their blind child feel included. If they're sitting at a lunch table with other children that are maybe sighted, if they're in a public school where there's other sighted children, and those kids might have a note or a little postie or something from their parent saying, you know, I put a cookie in your lunch today. I love you. Or, you know, whatever, you know, special little treat. The blind kids sometimes might feel left out from that. And so I think from that aspect, this was an amazing story that we both really liked. And I even said, I'm going to do it in reverse because I'm the blind parent with a sighted child but I can't really write my child a note like that. So I will put treats in there for her and record an audio message so that she has something like that in her lunch. And it's still in the mail, hopefully on the way. It's not here yet, but when it is, I'll definitely review it. But I say all of this to say that I recently received an email concerning that conversation, Maria, and the email, well, let me have it speak for itself. Let's go ahead and play that email in. Subject, another point of view. Hello, Tim. If you look at the health of our young children, you will see that our way of life has many problems. One of which is highly processed food we feed our children. Kellogg's are one of the producers of highly processed cereal with high levels of salt and sugar that are causing such problems as childhood obesity. It's insidious that they should use the blind community like this. Gina. So Maria, here's the thing. I think that in one respect, this is a good point. I think 
that it is interesting that a company that their main business in a way are sugary children's cereals. Maybe that could send the wrong message in, in some respects. That being said, I know you've looked at this. I've looked at this as well. Rice Krispie treats. Yes, there is some level of fat in them. I believe one single serving is about two grams of fat, something like that. Mm -hmm. So there is fat mm -hmm. there. Uh, there's going to be sugar, of course, because of the marshmallow. That being said, I did look at a box of Rice Krispies cereal, just plain Rice Krispies. It's actually one of the more healthy cereals I've ever seen because there's very, very little sugar, maybe like two sugars for a, a one and one fourth cup uh, serving of cereal, which is more serving, honestly, than you get from a lot of other cereals. A lot of cereals, it's like three-fourths cup, maybe one cup. But for a, a Rice Krispies bowl, it's about one and one-fourths cup. And I think it was like two or three or four, something like that, in the sugar department. Um, everything else was very low, though. Very low, if not anything, in fat and calories. And everything else was really good compared to your cereals that are like nine sugars, 11 sugars, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even, of course, although it's, it's fruit, like Ray Raisin brand has like 16 sugars, but of course that's because of the raisins, you know, obviously, yeah. but that being said, Rice Krispies on a whole is a healthy cereal. Kellogg's does offer other healthier varieties of cereal. Now I'm not a, a Kellogg's apologist. I'm not trying to defend Kellogg's necessarily. What I'm, what I am trying to get at is I think that she makes a good point in this email to the, to the degree of there are so many unhealthy options out there in the world. Why did it have to be Kellogg's that NFB partnered with on that? That being said, it probably was a lot easier for them to get Kellogg's on board than it would be like Whole, whole you know, Whole Foods or something. You know, I, I don't know who they would have gone to otherwise. And Kellogg's is a very popular brand with families and children. And honestly, uh, because I'm not going to always do it, I don't think you necessarily have to put a Rice Krispie treat in the box. You don't have to put the Braille sticker on a Rice Krispie treat. You can you know, put it anything in there that you like. The aspect of this that I looked at with the story, Maria, is they're making it available where nobody else is doing this. There's no other product or no other company that's allowing you to do this with these stickers and this audio, you know, snack box. And so that's where I say good on Kellogg's, good on the NFB to provide something like this that nobody else is really doing. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's a good start. So I'm going to shut up now because I think I've talked to us a little bit here. So <laughs> let you let you have a word on this. But, but what do you think about this email, Maria? Where, where do you sit on this? Well, you know, I do agree with what you've said. And I, I do understand that there is obesity. There's childhood obesity. And we have to be um, a little more cognizant of the sugary treats that we feed our children. But as they say, everything in moderation. And you pointed out that you don't always have to put a Rice Krispie treat in the box. You could put other healthier options in the box, you know, nuts or, um, you know, baked kale chips, <laughs> like any kid would like baked kale <laughs> chips, carrots or raisins or a box of raisins, or maybe even yogurt covered raisins, you know, just, you can do anything. And maybe it's that once a week surprise treat that you put into the box into your child's lunch. And like you said, could they have gone to another company, smaller company that, um, you know, makes maybe healthier option granola bars or fruit strips. Yeah, but you know, Kellogg's is huge. And and other companies are going to take notice of this. And my point on it is that this could be the spark that ignites other companies to, 
to follow suit, to do something similar, if, if not, you know, the same, or, or, you know, probably can't because it's probably Kellogg's product, but to do something similar for their own products, for their own snacks and single serving things that go into kids' lunches. I mean, you know, people are buying single serving bags of potato chips, you know, the raisin boxes and, and fruit snacks and things of that sort. It's been a while since I've packed my kids' lunches, but <laughs> so who's to say that General Mills doesn't hop on board or Mott's who makes the fruit snacks doesn't hop on board. You know, that would be a great thing. I mean, it's a good thing. And just because they happen to pick the Rice Krispies treat, well, that's just what they picked. Okay. Oh, well, but it doesn't mean they're targeting, you know, to make blind children fat. I mean, that's not what they're doing. It's, it was a large company and it was a company willing to work with NFB to make something good happen. And hopefully this will help and encourage other large, large corporations and companies to follow suit and doing the same thing for some of their snack products. Absolutely. And that's exactly why I wanted to talk with you about this, Maria, not just because we had spoken about it before, but you know, you as a mom, as a fitness instructor, you know, you get that there are other snacks out there. And so I knew that you would understand where she was coming from with this email at the same time. Like you said, you don't have to put that type of snack in there. As a matter of fact, the box and the stickers are free. So you don't pay Kellogg's or anybody else for this. It does take a while to get shipped apparently, cause I'm still waiting for mine, but they did say four to six weeks. So, you know, that's fine. That's fair. Mm -hmm. Um, but that being said, once I receive it, I can put a rice crispy treat in that box but I don't have to. Now, my yeah. daughter will love it if I did. Yeah. But um, right. but that being said, in our home, we've tried really hard to make sure that she doesn't just want Rice Krispie treats. There are other healthier options that my daughter will be quite happy with. If I don't give her a Rice Krispie treat one day, she's not going to come home and yell at me because I didn't put a Rice Krispie <laughs> treat in there. At least I don't think she will. Yeah. Um, if, I, if I put other healthy snacks in there that I know she likes and enjoys, she's going to love that all the same. And, and what it comes down to ultimately, and this is where I looked at this story from the beginning, but that's why I appreciate this email because it does give a difference of a opinion and, mm -hmm. and kind of makes us think uh, differently about it. But I looked at it from the standpoint of inclusion, not just accessibility, but inclusion, the child's inclusion with their sighted peers, or in my case, the inclusion that I get to experience as a blind parent offering this to my sighted child where my wife can write her a note, but, but I can't, or I mean, I could, but she won't be able to read it if I write it. Right. Um, so right. this is a way for me to do that and have that parental, you know, rite of passage, if you will, to send a note with my first grader in her lunch that she can, you know, hear that audio and go, oh, daddy loves me or he's proud of me or, you <laughs> yeah. know, whatever. I mean, she knows yeah. that already. I tell her, but, you know, other kids getting their notes and she's not getting one for me. It's only for mom. Well, I no that yeah. that to me is an access acceptable as a blind father. I want her to grow up getting notes for me. And now this allows me to do something that I couldn't do before. And so from that aspect, I love it. And I think you're absolutely right. If it had to start with Kellogg, so be it. I get the points that are being made here, but hopefully other companies will get on board. They'll put Braille on their packaging or allow you to purchase or not even purchase, but just allow you to get for free like Kellogg's has done to get Braille stickers or boxes that can record audio just like this. And other companies can see the value in this type of inclusion and uh, and do it mm -hmm. as well. And again, we, we subscribe to uh, NatureBox, which is a monthly health food subscription that 
you would never know that they're supposed to be healthy because they taste fantastic. Mm. Um, they're so good. I've and my daughter that. loves them. Yeah, Nature Box is so good. And, and my daughter loves them. If I put some of that in a zippy bag and put it in that box and record a message, she's not going to be upset because it's something she likes. Yes. And if once a week or once every couple of weeks, I throw a Rice Krispie Treat in there as a special snack, well, obviously she's going to love that. And I could do that, but I think it comes down to the parent's choice, what you're doing with your child, the decisions you make as a household, as a family, and how you're, you're educating your child about proper eating. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, I, I just don't, yeah. I don't think there was any malice here. I don't think that no. NFB or, or Kellogg's was saying, yeah, we're going to get into this child's lunchbox and, and get them all of our fatty cereals and fatty foods. I don't think that there, at least I hope there wasn't something like that involved here. I'm no. hoping it truly was from the standpoint of let's let these children feel included and loved just like their sighted peers. Right, right. Well, and it works the other way around too. Um, the marketing was great because you as a blind father is like, I'm all over this because now I can record a message for my sighted child. So, exactly. you know, it, it goes so many different directions. I mean, do you think that someone sitting next to your child at lunchtime is going to hear that? They're going to be like, I want one and they can see they're not blind. So, you know, yeah, they may not even have a parent that's blind. They just want it just because. They just want it because they want to hear their parents' voice or their grandparents' voice or their guardian's voice. Yep. You know, so again, it, it's, it's sure it started off this way, but it could certainly take off into the side of community as well. And, uh, so again, Tim, you know, it does come down to teaching your child healthy food choices, um, having, you know, limiting the sugary snacks to, you know, moderation and, you know, but if they don't eat the Rice Krispie Street that you give them at lunch, they're going to eat, they're going to eat it somewhere. Okay. So let's just be real. <laughs> they're they're going to go eat it at their friend's house or, or something, you know? So, you know, kids are going to, kids are going to see it. Kids are going to want it. Kids are going to eat it. Um, and if you don't make it taboo, then they don't think like, oh, you know, they want what they can't have. Well, if you make it okay, but again, just like oh, every now and again, they'll accept that. But if you hold it away from them all the time, that's going to make them want it more. And then you got a whole nother problem. So anyway, but no, great. You know, you know, email totally appreciated because I think those give great, other, uh, great perspectives um, from other folks who hear what we have to say. And thank you, Tim, for allowing us to talk a little bit more about this article, um, per, you know, and with this email that you received, because, you know, other people might have had the same thought, just didn't happen to write in. So, you know what? It, maybe it was something that needed to be addressed. And I think we uh, pretty much did that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think we did address that. And, and I do appreciate an email like this. I, I don't want it to always be, you know, sugar coated and rainbows and all that kind of thing. There, there's going to be dissent or other opinions. And, and I want to hear that. I think that's important to discuss on that note. Then, if, you know, if anybody out there listening has thoughts on this, you know, was this the right decision? Did NFB partner with Kellogg's in an appropriate way? Was that the right company to do this with? Or do you think they should have gone with somebody else? You know, what do you guys think? Email me again, Tim at lifeafterblindness.com. Let us know what you think about this whole situation and what you think about the Braille stickers and the audio box in general. Well, Maria, those were the big stories that I wanted to cover this week with you. I, I'm always so appreciative of you making the time to come on and talk with me through the news on Life After Blindness. But there's other places that people can find you and other things that you're working on. So if you could take a moment, tell people where they can find you and talk about the things you're, you're doing right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you can find my blog at girlgoneblind.com. 
I'm all over social media on Facebook at Girl Gone Blind and on Twitter at Girl underscore Gone underscore Blind and on Instagram at Girl Gone Blind. And, you know, nothing super exciting right now. I've just got a, a few blogs in the wings. I think some that are um, going to definitely pique some interest. Well, I always hope that. But um, yeah, I'll be shooting out some new blogs here in the next couple of days. And um, I am working on my own project. doesn't have so much to do with um, blindness per se, but Tim, there may be a new girl on a podcast coming out soon. So. All right. Mm. I'd like to hear that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I strongly encourage everyone out there, if you haven't checked out Maria's blog and website, girlgoneblind.com, please check it out. It's a great read. The blogs are wonderful. You've been doing this for quite a while now. You probably have a novel's worth of blogs out there that you could put together. So if anybody's just starting off, go back and take a, take a read because there's so many good blogs out there, so many different topics that you've covered you know, over time. And uh, I'm eager to see what the new ones are. When, when you get those new ones out, we'll have to discuss that and uh, dive in deep to what those are going to be all about. So I look forward to that. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Tim. Anytime. Um, come on and I'll be the pretty one to discuss the news. <laughs> <laughs> Always the pretty one. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Maria. Look forward to having you back. Okay, Tim. Thank you. Bye-bye. Maria always sounds so happy, doesn't she? Well, thanks again to Maria for joining me for the news once again. Please check out her website, girlgoneblind.com. You won't regret it. She has a lot of really great information and personal stories there that you can read. So please check that out again, girlgoneblind.com. And make sure that you join us next week for the news because I have a feeling it's going to be pretty jam-packed. I've already been seeing stories about the Marrakesh Treaty being signed in the United States. That's a treaty that will allow better access to books. Facebook has also announced that they are working on a meme reader or meme translator so that voiceover can read the text of memes in Facebook. So many other stories, including Amazon's announcements with all their new devices and skills for and abilities for the Lady A built into their Amazon Echoes. Also here soon, Google will be having an announcement with new hardware as well. Of course, like I said, iOS 12 is out for iPhone users. There's a whole lot of things to talk about there. So many other stories. Recently, I've seen some stories about blind dancers, blind football players, blind artists. So one or any of all of these could be talked about next week or in the coming weeks in the news on Life of Your Blindness. So please make sure to tune in next time. And now let's take a listen to my interview with Marty Schultz from Blindfold Games. Marty, thank you so much for coming back on Life After Blindness. Oh, thanks for inviting me today. So, Marty, it's been a while since we last spoke, almost a year now. We talked about uh, talking about your apps and how Apple was treating them. And I know we got through that safe and sound, thank goodness, almost a year ago. But since then, you've been doing a lot of different things with Blindfold Games, as well as new initiatives that you're taking on. Talk to me a little bit about what's been going on the last year or so. Sure. So... Um, I continue to publish a game or so every month or so. I think we're up to about 80 games. We have about 20,000 game fans worldwide. Um, but over the past six months or so, I've been contacted by a lot of uh, O&M uh, specialists, orientation mobility specialists, and teachers of visually impaired and vision rehabilitation therapists. And I, I've been hearing that they're starting to use a bunch of the games um, in settings working with young kids in school to practice different skills, be it cardinal directions or compass directions or memory or fine motor control, a variety of 
of different skills, all of which kind of fall into this expanded core curriculum that's uh, kind of become a buzzword now within a lot of the uh, teachers of visually impaired. And I was actually in uh, New York City a while ago meeting with the people over at the Lighthouse Guild, and they mentioned to me how there's a real dearth of, of apps and ways for younger, younger visually impaired kids to practice any of the things they learn. And it's causing them to be held back a little more and not be as efficient with assistive technology as they could be. So I was recently, I think in um, May, I went out to um, the VisionServe Alliance. This is a, a conference of a lot of the heads of uh, the organizations that provide services for uh, blind and visually impaired people, like the Lighthouses, people uh, like American Printing House for the Blind, American Foundation for the Blind, um, and a number, a large number of organizations. Um, and I was kind of running the idea by them. I said, does it make sense to, to us to come out with a set of games that are really focused on the skills that um, kids need and be able to track the, the, the kids' progress somehow in the cloud and have a dashboard available for the teachers uh, and the specialists to see that the child is making the right type of progress. So whether it's something like Blindfold Barnyard or any of the other games that are used in these type of settings, it would kind of be a fun way to practice these skills. And, and I got a lot of positive feedback. So I actually went out to um, the AER conference in Reno about a month ago, which is kind of an organization that provides, um, uh, I don't know if it's certification, but a lot of teaching the visually impaired students attend this. I think they had uh, almost a thousand attendees at their conference. So I started asking people um, at that conference whether they need for it. So I, I would go up to people who attending the conference and I'd ask if they were familiar with blindfold games. And a lot of them were. And if they were, then I'd ask, can I you know, talk to them for about 10 minutes or so and record the conversation? And many of them gave me permission to do that. And I would ask them, okay, how are you using the games and why are they important in, in your practice? And what I learned is, in, in addition to the games being uh, a reward for proper behavior from kids, they're also used to practice skills. And I learned that a lot of the teachers are only working with the students once or twice a week for anywhere from a half hour to an hour or two, and that they expect the student to practice any of the skills that, that they were taught. And uh, so that next week when the teacher comes back, they could move on to some other skills. And what I heard over and over again was, the teacher would spend time with the child teaching something, you know, let's say it's compass directions or clock directions, and they'd come back the next week and there'd be no progress because the student wasn't motivated to, to practice and the parents didn't have time. So, and the sure. regular, you know, the regular, you know, be it first grade or second grade, a kindergarten teacher didn't have time because she had too many other children to deal with in the classroom. And the paraprofessional didn't really have time to, to work and do the right things because they were busy prepping the kid for the lesson. So, they said, but when they use the, one of the blindfold games to teach that, the kids actually acquire the skill and they can really make progress over a week-by-week -week basis. Um, and I heard this enough times that I said, okay, there's probably a real need here. Around the same time, I sent out a survey to everybody on the mailing list, and anyone has a game, the people might have seen the survey come by, where I kind of asked a, a couple of dozen questions. I put together the survey with a number of, of TVIs and a number of professors um, who specialize in this. And 
we found out, I expected to get a couple of hundred responses on the survey. Um, there are about 6,000 specialists throughout the United States who, who work with visually impaired students. Uh, and I thought I'd get a couple of hundred responses. I ended up getting about 1,500 responses. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. It was overwhelming. Yeah, like between a, third, between a quarter and a third of the people who work in this field got back to me and really told me that you know, doing something like these you know, educational-based games would be quite a benefit. So I also asked kind of what age groups do you work on, and most of the, the majority are in, in the um, pre-K through about fourth grade. And I also asked how many students do you, in your caseload, and, and from the student count as well, it represented between a quarter and a third of the students that are listed as um, legally blind or visually impaired requiring these type of services in, throughout the United States. And, you know, hers from several hundred overseas as well. So that was enough for us to go back and start saying, okay, there's really a need here. So let's um, continue to find out who these uh, these teachers of the visually impaired are, get the word out to them, talk to the orientation mobility specialists, talk to the visual rehabilitation therapists, and let them know that we're um, putting together an organization that can actually produce um, curriculum-based games. And it's everyone I talked to about thinks it's a wonderful idea and we're moving ahead. Now, the transition from the Blindfold Game series to this new initiative actually makes a lot of sense to me because as you were talking about, things like Blindfold Barnyard and, and so many other games come to mind when it comes to coordination or just learning, just all kinds of different skills, quite honestly, can be found in many of your games. And if you say there's 80 games, I, I probably have a good 60 or 70 of them myself. So I understand that, yeah, there, there's a lot of content there that could be pulled out and used in an educational environment, not just for the situation, like you said, about uh, parents or teachers rewarding the child with time playing those games, but taking it the extra step to make them more educational, more directed in a way. So what was that transition like? What, what kind of things were the teachers looking for and the professionals looking for? And, and what did you do to uh, accommodate that? Well, we're actually going to use the blindfold games as a model to build a new game, but we're doing everything really from scratch because we want to make sure that the games are equally accessible across both iPhone and iPad and Android and, and the type of computers that are found in most schools these days, which are things like Chromebooks or other netbooks. So we're, whereas all the blindfold games I wrote in my spare time um, in, a, in a language called Objective-C, all the new games will probably be designed in Unity, which is a gaming engine, and will be available on all these different platforms because, again, you don't know what a school has. And the concept that we tested out in Blindfold Games is really a model, but everything's going to be rewritten from the ground up and, and using much better engineers than, than I am to do a, a good job. <laughs> well, uh, that's a very modest approach, but that being said, anybody who's played any of the blindfold games knows that they, they are a whole lot of fun and uh, can be anywhere from simple to very in-depth. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where these, these new apps go uh, you know, go in the future. And that's the thing I liked about it when I first read about this uh, from you, Marty, when you were talking about making it multi-platform, not just iPhone, iPad, but Android, you know, PC, Chromebook, that's going to be a large undertaking. But I think you're right. That's a very important aspect because you don't know necessarily what the schools have available. That's right. And, and the, by using a gaming engine called Unity, you can aim at all those platforms simultaneously. And, um, Again, you know, school districts that have more money are more likely to have iPhone, iPads for their students, whereas school districts in more depressed areas of this country might have Android, you know, 
pads because they're so much uh, less expensive. Um, and you know, those that haven't updated their hardware recently, they'll probably have some sort of Chromebook because they're also very inexpensive. And you know, of course, it'll work. It'll basically on those platforms, it'll be browser based as opposed to the i. And on the iPhone, it'll be a native app, and on the Android, it'll be a native app. Um, the other thing that a lot of these games will start doing is recording in the cloud. Uh, for the teacher to, to look at is how much time the student is playing the game, what levels of the game they're at, what skills are being tested, how well they're accomplishing those skills. So we'll actually map a lot of the, the, the objectives that the teacher has for the student into specific ways that the game will behave. As a parent myself of a six-year-old, she's just gotten in the first grade. I, I think that's a fantastic part of it to have implemented is to be able to have the teacher see what the child is learning, what they're doing, how they, how they've made certain achievements, and then they can maybe tailor the experience or what they want the child to do from there. And then of course, be able to interact with the parents of the child so they can say, here's what the child is doing. Here's what they're learning. Here's how they're learning it. So I think having that level of interaction, not only of course helps the child and the teacher, but also can bring the parent into this as well. Right. And the parent can um, make sure the kid is, is playing properly and can, is learning it. It's really, it, it helps everybody all around. So you know, the teacher, it helps the teacher because uh, she knows the student is moving ahead properly. It helps the school district because they know that they're moving the student more and more towards independence. And of course, the parent's happy that the, the child is also achieving independence. So like you said, you are starting from scratch with this, but using blindfold games as a model to help guide what you're going to go you know, do going forward. Do you have an idea yet in this kind of pre-production or this early stage, what types of games you're going to use to measure these things and, and how you're going to help the children learn? I think that the game that we're going to model it around first will be Blindfold Barnyard because that that does so many amazing um, skills that it, it just kind of blows me away that I just stumbled into that game. I mean, obviously it does fine <laughs> motor control. It does... Um, uh, compass directions, cl uh, clock directions. It requires memory to, re to remember what's on what side of the fences. It also, I, I didn't even realize this, I was talking to um, Diane Browner, who writes for pa Perkins Path to Technology, that, that blog that goes out a couple times a week. And she yep. it even teaches how to um, touch and drag, which is an important skill that students need to learn as they use the, these type of different accessible devices and, and they want to be independent, is learning how to touch and drag. Um, so there's so many skills there. So we're going to use that as, as the first game. We haven't decided what the second game is going to be, but our goal is to build about two games, build out the, the cloud-based storage system and, and a web-based dashboard um, with all the proper security levels so that we're, not, we're compliant with concepts like FERPA, which keeps a lot of student data private and other issues. So we'll kind of prototype with those and hope to get something done you know, by the end of the year or early next year. That does make a lot of sense using Blindfold Barnyard as kind of a first, you know, platform and, and uh, general, you know, use case basically for these games, because you're right, there's so many different aspects of the game. And that brings to mind a lot of aspects of, of many of your games where you're dragging in a spatial awareness kind of environment. You know, you have to have that spatial awareness. Uh, you know, your basketball game comes to mind. Several other games come to mind where you're in an environment and having to know where you are in that environment, dragging across the screen, going and picking up an item, you know, for, for instance. And so I think something like Blindfold Barnyard has a lot of those elements in it. 
and can be a, a good launching point for games like that. Uh, now, would you have it be where you're using games like that to introduce not just, of course, other educational concepts, concepts but also, like you just said, uh, basic concepts about using smartphones or, or you know, these types of devices? Would you ever go as far as making a game that's specific to teaching a child, here's how you use all the gestures within an iPhone, say, for instance. We actually already did that with Blindfold Bop Gesture. That was a project. Oh, that's that, true, yeah. That does that. And, of course, now that we got some good, really good engineers on it, they can take that game, which I kind of threw together between knowing what was needed to help seniors who are losing their vision as well as make a fun game. But the goal of that game came out of a collaboration with the Braille Institute where they said, we need something to help seniors losing their vision not be afraid of using um, – you know, the iPhone and have teach them all these voiceover gestures. So I built the game and then I found the game was really popular with everybody because it just gets faster and faster. And I use my, yes, it does. <laughs> and I use my daughter's voice to, to get, add more emotion back to it because I knew voiceover would never give it that same flavor of personalized attention. So it was the second time I, used, I think it was actually the second game I've used her voice on the first game, of course, being blindfold racer. Of course. And, and getting her to cooperate was always a challenge because it, when she did the voices for um, Blindfold Bop Gesture, I think she was about 16 and a half years old already and, and <laughs> a little harder to convince to do things. Um, but she did, a, yep. she did a great job on it and it's pretty popular. So, you know, the game, we'll probably do a couple of games that are designed around learning assistive technology, be it learning the gestures or learning the keyboard or whether it's learning Jaws. So there's enough things out there that we can make them fun games um, and, again, record how well the student is doing so to, to make sure that uh, the, the kids learn and the teachers see that the kid is learning and the parents see as well. Absolutely. I think that collaboration and putting it in that way is, is going to be so helpful, like I said before, to be able to have parents, teachers, and children all on the same page and knowing the child is learning but having fun at the same time. And I think that's really the most important part here is the children will be learning, but having such a good time while they're learning that they won't even know or care that they're learning. And, and that's always very important. You, you want to hear something amusing that I never even realized, but the games are doing. And this, this kind of blew me away, which is I was, I was talking to one of the teachers at, in Reno at the AR conference. And she was telling me sometimes the blindfold games are actually teaching leadership skills. These teachers mentioned that and more often than not, the uh, visually impaired student will follow their peers and do whatever their peers are suggesting and don't really get into a leadership role. But when one of them starts playing the, the, one of the blindfold games and they really like it, they start showing their friends about the game and they get all their friends playing it too. And from that, these students are learning actually leadership skills in, in convincing the group to do something and then get, making sure everybody uh, learns the game and they can all kind of play together. And I just thought that was fascinating. That is really fascinating that not only can they share the games then with their peers and 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 have that experience um, you know, in their community, but then you're right to be able to say, you know what, I'm not following in this aspect. I'm going to be a leader. I think it's a very important concept for, for any child, of course, to have. And so if the games have that side effect of showing a child how to be a leader and, and how to share and, and interact in that, in, you know, in their environment with their peers, I think that's a fantastic side effect. It's um, And again, it had surprised me. So I was glad that the games are not only used to encourage, um, you know, practice skills and being used as rewards for students, but it's also teaching leadership skills. 
Absolutely. So the, the next step, um, you had mentioned to me earlier uh, about the blindfold games, and I'm continuing to publish the games. Currently, I'm working on a game that people have been requesting about the past year or two, which is a game where you can take care of a virtual dog, where you have to walk it and feed it and play with it. Um, you want to make sure you take the, the dog's leash on and off properly and when you come back home. And even if you're not actively playing the game, if there's a, a, a task you have to do with your dog, like feed it in the morning or walk it afterwards, the, the, it'll actually notify your phone that there's a task for you to take care of with your dog so people will be able to play this kind of round the clock while they're doing other things. That should be an exciting game. I think that'll be really exciting. I know there's a lot of people that are looking forward to a game like that where they can take care of a, a virtual pet. I know there are games out there like that that are not at all accessible for, for the blind and vision impaired with voiceover. And so I'm sure that'll be a, a very popular game uh, as well. Anything else that you're looking into to doing? Uh, I want, I've been getting a lot of requests for a shooter game. and I'm looking for some sort of nonviolent shooting game. And a couple of people have suggested doing a game where you're a, a firefighter putting out fires. So in the simplest way, you're simply moving your iPhone left and right, aiming at the fires and shooting the water. As it gets more complex, there'll be more tasks that you have to fulfill, you know, rescuing people from buildings or using other types of, you know, using foam as opposed to water and based on what the fire is from. So that should be fun. It'll take a while to build it out. That sounds like a lot of fun. I, I I am looking forward to that now that you mentioned it. That'd be a lot of fun to be able to you know put out the fires like you say, rescue people from buildings. Almost brings this shows my age, but the old you know helicopter rescue from the uh, from the eighties. You know, landing the copter on top of the building and going and rescuing the people, and um, you know, very crude graphics back at the time, but uh, but still a lot of fun gameplay. So yeah, to be able to be a firefighter and and doing that in a, in a nonviolent way, like you said, and actually again going back to that leadership ability and, and learning how to do that and having the the pride in uh you know putting out the fires saving people and uh achieving those things in a game i think would be fantastic just for people of any age quite honestly it, it should be fun and i'll i'll keep you posted as we build it out absolutely looking forward to that well marty as we wrap up our conversation here if people want to get a hold of you or find out more information about blindfold games and your education initiatives all the things that you're doing how can they get in touch with you and find out more okay to follow the games I have a website called blindfoldgames.org, and it lists I, – I blog on this about twice a week, either about a game or other activities we're up to, um, as well as there's a full list of all the games there. One of the tabs and the website's fully accessible. They, people can follow me on Twitter, at blindfoldgames. And then as far as uh, the other activities I'm up to, including the new company, I have, I'm tweeting it at, at MartySchultz111. Very good. Well, I strongly encourage everyone out there to take a look at what Marty's doing at blindfoldgames.org and everything going on with him. And Marty, I want to thank you so much for coming back on Life After Blindness and talking with me about it all. Well, thanks for inviting me. What a great new venture Marty has started there. I'm really eager to see where this goes and what he can do with it going forward. Now, if you want to get in touch with Marty or get more information about his Blindfold Games, of course, as he said, visit blindfoldgames.com for more information. And as always, you can visit the Apple App Store in the iOS App Store and download any of his 80 plus games available there. 
Now, before I close out the show, I did want to take just a brief moment here at the end to mention that there were a couple of weeks where I did not put out an episode. I wasn't really even on social media either. I did address this recently on social media, but I wanted just to say here, first and foremost, thank you so much to all of you who emailed me or sent me private notices on social media to ask what was going on and find out what was happening, why I hadn't been out there on social media, why there hadn't been a new show in a couple of weeks. I really greatly appreciate everyone for uh, getting in touch with me about that. And truth be told, what had happened was I had a routine appointment with my doctor. As many of you know, I had some issues going on earlier this year uh, with medical uh, issues and things going on. And so I had just a routine follow-up with my doctor. He thought there was something maybe going on. He ran a few tests there in the doctor's office and decided that it was probably a good idea to have me go to the emergency room just to be checked out, just to see what was going on with uh, some additional tests. They decided that I needed to be admitted for a couple of nights and uh, have further tests done. And they did find that I had some severe issues going on. They found that I uh, had a minor or mild dehydration situation going on. And I also was found to have a pulmonary embolism in each of my lungs, one small blood clot in each of my lungs. But they have taken care of that. I'm on the mend and I'm doing so much better. So again, thank you so much to everybody for reaching out, but I hope that explains what was going on. This year has definitely been a roller coaster ride for me with everything going on medically and all of this. So hopefully we can put this behind me and uh, go forward happy and healthy and continuing to bring out more episodes of Life After Blindness. That will do it for episode 29 of the Life After Blindness podcast. I want to thank you again so much for joining me for this episode. As always, if you have any questions for me or comments about the show, anything you want to say to me at all, please get in contact and send your emails to tim at lifeafterblindness.com. And for more information about me or the podcast or anything else upcoming with the show, you can visit the website. The website address is lifeafterblindness.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter by looking for the handle at LabCast. That's L-A-B-C-A-S-T. Please join me again next week as we continue this journey together to find that there truly can be a life after blindness. Take care, everybody. Everybody.